Okay, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning, kind of coming to the close of our study in 1 Peter, we'll pick up also in 2 Peter and finish those two letters together. This morning, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 this morning. Let me read the text and then we'll see if we can make some sense from this. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Therefore I exalt the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sword gain with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive glory, the unfading crown of glory. Father, we always look to your word, trusting you to speak by your spirit, Lord. May that happen this morning. For each heart that has come this morning, May the word of God minister to them. To each person who's come with joy, may they be filled with joy. To those who have come with perhaps trials and suffering, may the comfort of the Holy Spirit be with them. As the word of God is spoken and preached, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us have our favorite pastors. We think about, we've been watching Pastor Bob Coy from Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale on Wednesdays. Uh, I love Pastor Bob for his humor. It's a very interesting way he presents the scriptures. Um, I always appreciate Pastor Chuck Swindoll for his scholarship, if you've ever listened to him. Uh, we, we especially appreciate Pastor Chuck Smith for his um, steadfastness. Chuck has never wavered. He's just been slow and steady, but just a good man. And then uh, I like Pastor Jack Hayford, Church on the Way, because uh, Pastor Jack is a very transparent pastor. So we all have our favorites, amen? And it's, they're different in style, but they speak the word of God to our hearts. The reason I bring this up is because our passage this morning uh, deals with pastors. The word elder can be translated pastor. So we're going to talk about pastors, although the scripture talks about elders. He's, he's talking about the pastors of the church. Now, last week, if you remember, he concluded his remarks concerning suffering. Okay? And he concluded in verse 19 of chapter 4 by saying that we should, whether we're suffering or not, that we should... Entrust our souls to the faithful creator in doing what is right. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, therefore. So he's making some application in talking about people doing what is right. And the first people he's going to pick on (laughs) is the pastors, the head of the church. And he's going to give some instruction on what it means to be a pastor doing what is right. Okay? And then beginning in chapter 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 5, he'll talk about the rest of the congregation. So you guys don't get caught up free. You're not all free. 
no free lunch this morning. But So the next time we get together, he'll be talking about what it means for the congregation to do what is right. But this morning, we're just going to take our time and look at the pastors. Now, you have to give me some grace here because I'm talking to myself here. So uh, I don't want to appear self-serving in any way, but I want to try to stay with uh, the verses that are here and the instruction that's given here. It's talking about your pastor or your pastors. And so um, that's the way it is. And we'll just take a look at it. Now, we each have our favorite pastors. Amen. I talked about some of my favorites. But now here's more important. Who are the Lord's favorites? Who's who's the pastors that he looks upon? Well, he's going to talk about that uh, this morning. So there's three main thoughts in these four verses. Um, And the first thing that he talks about is Peter's qualification. Now, Peter's writing, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to him. But he's talking about his qualifications to say what he's about to say. Now, he's not some guy who just came off the street and just going to, you know, slice and dice the pastors. But he has some very good qualifications to say what he's about to say. That's verse 1. Notice what he says. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. So the first qualification is his experience. His experience. He is a fellow pastor. He's walked in their shoes. He's seen the blessings and the difficulties of being a pastor. So he has earned the right to speak because he knows thereof what he's talking about. Uh, last Sunday, after the second service, the lady came up to me. She says, I have a question for you, Pastor Neil. And I thought, oh boy, going to get into the meat of the word. She says, I'm having trouble with my tomatoes. <laughs> and I gave her some advice. And the reason I had a qualification for giving her advice, for the years that I have failed in producing tomatoes and have learned, begun to learn a little bit something about today. See, I could speak to her why. From my experience. And so Peter speaks to them. I remember when Pastor Jimmy was here. He was the previous pastor. And I served with Pastor Jimmy as the associate pastor for four and a half years. Prior to him taking his family. And they went up off to the Philippines. He's one of our missionaries now. And sometimes as the associate pastor. As I watched Jimmy as the senior pastor. I said. I never kind of understood exactly sometimes what he did or why he did it. However, when he packed up and moved to the Philippines, ah, the light came on very fast because then I was walking in his shoes. Several months after Jimmy left, I I hired a part-time lady to help me. She had just come off the mission field. Her name was Kathy. Kathy Robinson. And she was helping me with the ladies and some of the other issues that I need help with. And I think she was on staff here for about two years. Um, eh, a little bit. Plus or minus. And uh, Kathy was getting married, and so she was moving back east. And she was marrying a pastor, a man who was going to be a pastor. So we had our kind of final interview, kind of talking about what had happened. And Kathy was not real positive about my ministry. <laughs> uh, she had some rather pointed things that she said to me about how I was doing as a new senior pastor. 
And it was kind of difficult, but we did part as friends. And I said, thank you so much for sharing those things, Kathy. And then about two years later, I got this real long letter from Kathy. I hadn't heard from her. I knew she got married. They were pastoring a church now. And the first thing she said is she says, dear Pastor Neil, I want to ask you to forgive me for all those horrible things I said about you. And and the reason she said that is I have learned now what it is to be a senior pastor because I am married to one. See, all of a sudden her perspective changed because of her experience of being married to a pastor. You see, it's real easy to make all sorts of comments. But those comments sometimes are not exactly right on because you haven't experienced that. And sometimes if you see me do things or wonder what I'm doing and you don't necessarily agree with it, what you need to do is look at the long range. Look at your pastor, the long range. And look at his character rather than necessarily the event that maybe has kind of tweaked your your attitude. You look at the character of the man over the long run, whether it's me or anyone else. So, first thing he says, he calls his experience, his qualification is his experience. The next... And here we bring out the big, he bring, brings out the big guns because he says, as your fellow elder and a wish, witness of the sufferings of Christ, he brings up his spiritual life. He walked with, for three and a half years with Jesus. He saw his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He had a real spiritual life. He knew Jesus personally. That's, he brings out the big guns now. He's laying it down. Uh, He has seen it all. He's had a real experience with Jesus. Now, that's true also for Pastor Chuck. When Pastor Chuck was speaking at the the pastor's conference this year in Murrieta in June, we had 900 plus pastors there. And when Pastor Chuck got up to speak, everyone was careful to listen. Why? Because almost of his 50 years of walking with Jesus consistently, and he earned the right to be listened to and heard. So Peterson's second qualification is, I've walked with Jesus. I've seen him. I know him. Now, his third qualification is found in the latter part of the verse. And he says, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. His assurance He knows he's in the kingdom. There's no question about it. He has assurance of his salvation. He knows that he's in the kingdom. There's no doubt in his heart. He's waiting for the glory to be be revealed. Now, very important to know that, to know what they call know in your knower about who you are and where you're going. Classic example is found in Jesus. Now, in John chapter 13, Jesus is getting ready to um, minister the final words. Chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 are filled with the final words that he has to say to his disciples. He's got some very important things to say. 
And also he's going to wash the disciples' feet. And he's about to enter into his passion. And the first couple of verses in John chapter 13, the first three verses, it says that Jesus, knowing who he was, very important, and knowing where he was going, those things, knowing those things, those two things, enabled him to speak an authoritative word to his, to his fellow disciples and enabled him to wash the feet of the disciples and face his passion, which was coming up the very next day. See, he knew who he was. He knew where he was going. Peter's the same thing. I know I'm a partaker of the glory. Now, how about you? Do you know that? Do you know you're in the kingdom? Do you know that you're going to heaven? Do you know that you're a child of God? Very important question. Do you know who you are? Are you a child of God? And are you going to heaven? That's a very, very important question. Because when you know that, it can change how you deal with certain situations. This is a little sidebar. You're saying, wait a minute, I thought you were going to talk about pastors. Now you're talking about me, Neil. (laughs) Well, this is just a little sidebar. We're just doing a little sidebar here. Important to know those things. Okay. So here's his qualifications. His experience, his spiritual life, and his assurance. He knows who he is, knows where he's going. Okay. Then in verses 2 and 3, he gives an exhortation. Peter's exhortation. Now we move back to the therefore. Okay? He says, therefore, pastors, here's what you need to do what is right. This is what pastors do when they're doing the right thing. And he lists five characteristics. As a pastor, you're doing what is right. Okay, let's take a look at him. Verses 2 and 3. First, the pastor is to shepherd the flock. Pastors are to shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock. The word is, can be translated tend. The pastor is to tend the flock, which means to care, to lead, to guide, and protect uh, the church, the flock of God. Uh, not just be a good teacher... Not just to hide in the office and come out Sunday morning and preach a sermon and run back in. And, but he is to interrelate with the persons, the people, to watch over, to protect, to shepherd, to guide the people. Now sometimes that becomes very difficult when the church gets very, very large, isn't it? I like our church. I like our church. I like the size of our church. Because I can almost get to know each one of you. And I hope you don't perceive me as just a being the teacher, but I'm the pastor. And I'm, I am, that is only applies not only to my teaching, but also to my care for you and to my concern for you and my interpersonal relationships with you. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. He's to tend the flock. That's his primary. And that's not only teaching, but dealing with the people. Now, Secondly, he says, shepherd the flock, exercising oversight. Now, this almost kind of goes into the, what I had just said about shepherding, but there's a slight difference. He is to be the leader of the flock, the leader of the flock. He is to exercise oversight, which means he's the boss. I don't know how you feel about that, but here at Calvary Chapel... Uh, the pastor is not only the pastor, 
but he's the president of the board. That's the way the church government, that's what is distinct about Calvary Chapel. Many churches have a separate board, and on that board is the president of the board, usually the senior member of the church. Some, you know, some guy who's been around, and he's the president of the board. Then they go out and they look and they try to hire pastors, and the pastor gets hired for a certain term, and if he doesn't work out, the president fires him. That, that, that's the way. Or they keep some churches set up where the pastor comes in just for a short period of time and they're always changing pastors every four or five years. The way Calvary Chapel is, when the church called me as a pastor or calls a pastor in any Calvary Chapel, he not only becomes the spiritual leader, but he becomes the president of the board, which means he's in charge. Pastor Chuck says Calvary Chapel pastors should be benevolent dictators. <laughs> he says that with a smile. Benevolent dictators. What does that mean? Well, I'm responsible to my board, and I have a good board, and they hold me responsible. Sometimes they think they're in charge, but a board members, I am in charge. <laughs> uh, now, they keep me running, okay, and I have a staff that keeps me running, but when all the discussions are done, and everything is presented, and we've all had our say. I'm the leader of the church. That's the way it's set up. I, I, it, have you ever seen a car? Most cars, except for those, those cars where they train people out, there's only one steering wheel. There's only one brake, one clutch, okay? So if you're going somewhere, somebody's got to make the final call. And here, I believe it's teaching. It's the pastor. He's the leader of the church. Now, he used to be submissive. He used to hear counsel from other spiritual people. But in the end, I pull the trigger. That's the way it is. Pastors are to exercise oversight. And when they don't, they fail the church. They fail the church. So we're to shepherd, we're oversight. Now, we're to do those two things. Here's the next one. Not under compulsion, voluntarily, according to the will of God. A couple of things going on here. The pastor should sense the call of God in his life. Pastor should sense the call of God in his life. You need to have God open the door for you to be the pastor. It's a God thing. Trust me. You don't want to push yourself into being a pastor of a church if God hasn't called you. Why? <laughs> I can tell you why. I give you a lot of experiences. Why? You need to be called of God because you can't do this job properly without God. God will stretch you to the point where you say, uh, and I have said this several times, God, I cannot do this job. And then you know what he does? He makes up the difference between what I can do and what has to be done. Very important, guys. It is a calling of God because you can't do it in your own strength. You need God in doing that. So it's a call of God according to the will of God. It says in James chapter 3 that the leaders, the teachers of the church are held to a stricter accountability. <laughs> it's not a job you want if God hasn't called you. And it should be voluntary. You need to have the want to. You need to be 
not just because your dad was the previous pastor and you're calling, he's calling you as his son or anybody pushing you into it. God hasn't called you. You don't want the job because you'll need God to do it. The last thing you want to do is go out on the, out on the limb, force yourself into a past, being in a position and God hasn't called you. God hasn't called you, don't do it. Say, no, thank you. God bless you. give you an example. When my dad got out of high school, he got out of high school in 1933-34, right in the middle of the Depression. Not a lot of jobs back then. Well, my Aunt Sue, who was the oldest sister, the oldest sibling, told my father, you need to go work for your brother Ben, who was a hairdresser. He, had a, he could get my father in. My father didn't necessarily want to be a hairdresser, he wasn't excited about it, but he just kind of got pushed into it. 20 years later, he woke up with a big mortgage, four kids, and he hated his job. They don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. You need to know who you are. You need to know who God is call- where God is placing you. Because when you do, you'll find uh, what life is about. Don't let anybody push you into something that is not you. And that's what he's saying here about pastors. Shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. You have to have the want to, according to the will of God. Next thing he says is pastors should do this with eagerness, not for sordid gain. Not for sword gain, but with eagerness. What is sword gain? That's money. You don't do it for money. You don't do it for a paycheck. It's with eagerness. Now, there have been several pastors in the years that I've been a Christian who used the church and used the church for their own purposes to get rich. And most of the time, their greed finally caught up with them and they... Um, They had a mess on their hands. But most pastors that I know of in smaller churches just barely get by. The church just takes care of them. So they're not getting rich um, working as a pastor. Well, then why do they do it? It says you're supposed to do it with eagerness. One pastor told me, by itself you couldn't pay me enough to do this job. I do it because I love it. I do it because I love it. Eagerness. Eagerness. So pastors should do it not under compulsion, voluntarily according to the will of God. Pastors should do this with eagerness, not for sword gain. Finally, it says, pastors don't lord it over their people, but prove themselves to be examples. Notice that? Verse 3. Not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving yourselves to be examples to the flock of God. I looked up that uh, word lording, and it actually means domineering. Domineering. Domineering can be um, translated um, or defined the rule of a strong person over those who are weak. The rule of a strong person over the one who is weak. Pastors are not to be domineering. 
You have to understand something. Jesus is the Lord of the church, not the pastor. Jesus is the Lord of the church, not the pastor. And believe it or not, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, which means what? We're all equal. There's not some super Christians, pastors, who lord it over and domineer the church. That's not the way it's supposed to be. But rather, he is to what? Prove himself by example of what a Christian is. Now, sometimes some people like this kind of pastor. Uh, He tells them what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. Some people like that. They don't even have to think for themselves. Pastor so-and-so will tell me everything I need to do. Well, that takes the hard work of thinking for yourself out of the picture. You want to be careful, my friends. Be very careful. Jesus is the Lord of the church, not the pastor. You're not some sort of sub-Christian submitting to the pastor and everything he says that he does. It also takes away the hard work of listening to the Holy Spirit and telling you what you should do. It says in Romans chapter 8, these are the children of God, those who are what? Led by the Spirit of God. Now, here's a little bit of advice from your dear pastor. Over the years, I've often seen, and I'm not speaking about anybody in particular that you know of, often these type of pastors have issues within themselves that they're preaching to. Do you understand what I'm talking about? They got issues that they're struggling with and they're preaching and their legalistic domineering spirit is really preaching against that which they're struggling with. So you want to be very careful to yield to these men because it's an issue that they have not resolved themselves. Because a pastor is to set an example. Now, Probably my, uh, the best example I've ever seen, one of the best besides Pastor Chuck, is a pastor that I know a little bit about. I've banged around with him at some of the senior pastor conferences. And he's not my, you know, I don't think he'd call me my friend. I'm a friend, I'm, I'm a brother, but I've had some inner, inner relationships with him. Is Pastor Damien Kyle from Calvary Chapel, uh, Modesto. We've been praying for Pastor Damien because he's struggling with cancer. But Pastor Damien, man, that guy, if you've ever listened to him, he preaches the word of God with authority and power. And yet, personally, I found him to be a very patient, kind, gentle man. See, the pastor is to preach the word, but he's not to lord it. He's not to be a domineering spirit telling you when, how, and why you should do something. So, Five characteristics. Pastor, that pleasing to God. He's to shepherd the flock. He's to be the leader. 
not under compulsion, voluntarily, according to the will of God, with eagerness, not for money. And he doesn't lord it over, but he proves himself to be an example by his life and his words of what it means to be a mature Christian. Okay, so we've looked at his qualifications. Peter gives his qualifications for saying what he just said. Then he gives the exhortation. And finally, in verse 4, he gives the promise. Here's a promise for those pastors who have done what he said in verses 2 and 3. That's the way it works. And he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you, that is, those pastors who have done what he was just said in verses 2 and 3, will receive an unfading crown of glory. Crown of glory. What does that mean? Well, I kind of started looking at that. The idea of a crown, of us receiving crowns, or pastors receiving crowns, appears about three times in the New Testament. Um, The Greek word is uh, stephanon. It's a crown. And it means a prize for victory, a a reward for distinguished service, or something that's given to a person because they've done something worthy. Okay? Um, 2 Timothy 4.8 talks about a crown of righteousness. James 1 and Revelation 2 talk about a crown of life. And here, Peter talks of crown of glory. Now they seem similar, but they're also slightly different. How do you understand them? Well, let me give you my kind of brief understanding of what he's talking about here. Um, in 2 Timothy, if you, can, you want to turn there with me for just a minute, 2 Timothy 4, 8. Paul is finishing his life. 2 Timothy 4, 8. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me a crown. But it's a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. Crown of life. Crown of righteousness, excuse me. Crown of righteousness. Hmm. What is he talking about there? I think that's symbolic. When Jesus comes back, we're going to be given, every one of us, because look, it says, also those who have loved his appearing. Sinless perfection. I think that's speaking about, we're going to have, when we see Jesus, we'll be, what does it say? We'll be like him. We won't be God's. But we will have an eternal body that will be sinless. Can you believe that? The crown of righteousness. (laughs) What did Paul say in Romans 7? He says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Well, the answer is Jesus. And one day he's going to deliver us all who have loved his appearing. The crown of righteousness is the ability to live forever forever. Finally, free 
from the sin that has so dogged us all our life. I think that's what the crown of righteousness is, symbolic of that which God gives every child of God. Sinless, eternal perfection. Okay. How about um, the crown of life? James chapter 1 talks about that. James chapter 1. Let me get there. James 1, 12. Yeah. Says here, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive not the crown of righteousness, but the crown of life. Hmm. Crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Then also it's mentioned in Revelations chapter 2, and he's speaking to the church in Smyrna. There's a church in Smyrna. And it says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, he says that our characteristic is we're to be faithful our Hanging in until death. That's the characteristic of us getting through the trial. Now, I think this refers to those who press through in trials and temptation in this life. A trial comes along, a temptation comes along, and you don't give in. You don't give in to it. Now, it says in Romans chapter 5 that when we do that, let me read it. You don't have to turn there. Let me read it. It says in Romans 5, verse 3, it says, And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations and our trials, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. I think what he's talking about, the crown of life, is the characteristic of life that we obtain when we go through trials and tribulations, what does it say? We have proven character. It gives us a quality of life that other people, although Christians, had failed in their temptation and trial. There's a, there's a character of life that comes with those who hang in there through trials and temptations. It's a, it's called, it's a quality of life that's not given to everybody. Now, the, the people who fail, if you failed in a temptation, you're not cast out of the kingdom. But when you go through a trial or a difficulty and you hang in there, there's a quality that's added to you of life. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and they might have life, what? More abundantly. I think the crown of life is speaking about when you face a trial and temptation and you don't fail and you hang in there, there's a quality that added to your character. That's how we're built up as Christians. So, there's a crown of life. Finally, going back to our passage, chapter 5, verse 4, he's talking about a crown of glory. Now, how's that different? 
Well, notice verse 1 of chapter 5. It says that he is a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed at the second coming. Ah. Then look at what he says here in verse 4. He says, and when the chief shepherd, that is the chief shepherd over the shepherds of the church, when he appears, you, who? The pastors who have been faithful to his call will partake in some of that glory. Whoa. That's what I think he's saying. Now, you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about one, everybody has a foundation. You build on that foundation wood, hay, and straw, which gets burned up, or gold, silver, precious stones. You remember that passage? It's talking about rewards. Now, he's talking, that's not salvation. That's talking about everybody gets in, even if you have wood, hay, and stubble. So I think some pastors who have a lot of wood, hay, and stubble, <laughs> um, this verse is not for all pastors. It's not for you. It's for the pastors who are faithful to do what God has told them to do. Okay. A lot about crowns here. But I brought this in because I want to show you something. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. Lest we get all heady about our crowns and you're beginning to feel, wow, my crown's pretty big. Let's just see what the Bible says about crowns. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. So your crown is feeling pretty heavy. Look what happens. Revelation 4, 4. And around the throne, this is the, the picture that John sees when he's called up into heaven. Around the throne, where God is, 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw the 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Who is that? Who are the 24 elders? I know who the 20. The 24 elders represent the raptured church, the church in heaven. And they got golden crowns. And all those crowns we're talking about, okay? They're on the net. Okay, you feeling pretty good about that? I got my crown, you got your crown. Maybe, maybe I've got three crowns because I've got, you know, you know, <laughs> persevere through trials. You know, I'm a child of God and I've hopefully been a good pastor. So I get three crowns. All right. Feeling pretty heavy, Pastor Neil, you know. But look, let's wait, 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 wait. Go to verse 10. Look what happens. And the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him, who lives forever and ever. And what do we do? We take our crowns and we cast them before Jesus. And they say, Worthy are you, Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power because you've created all things and because of your will they existed and they were created. What's going on here? They're taking the crowns and they're giving all the glory and honor to the Lord. And just about that time, the truth of the verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 15, 10 will come to pass. 1 Corinthians 15 says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I did not receive his grace of God in vain, but I labored more than all of them. I was true to what God called me to do. Yet, yet not I, but what? the grace of God with me. My friends, there it is. The grace of God has called you to ministry. 
perhaps. Grace of God has called me to ministry. Grace of God has called you to serve him. But in the end, you'll think, (laughs) this crown, it don't belong to me. It belongs to you, Jesus. Because although I was faithful to the call of God, I know even that faithfulness came about because of your grace in my life. And that's the truth. Now, okay, you said, well, Pastor, you've been preaching to yourself all morning. (laughs) Uh, But I'm going to make some applications to you because you're not getting all scot-free just yet. Here's some applications for you. You might want to write them down. Pray for your pastors. Pray for the pastor. You need to pray for us. We're a motley crew. We need all your prayers we can get, guys. Pray for us. Cut us some grace, guys. You've got to look. Sometimes when a pastor does something that you don't understand, you've got to kind of say, okay, I really don't know why Pastor Neil did that, but, you know, I... You know, he's just been a good friend to me and he's been good to this church and so I'm just going to trust him in that. You know why? Because sometimes we have to make decisions that you don't necessarily understand. Sometimes there's things that I can't explain to you guys. I can't explain to you because there's personal things that have happened. I can't explain it to you. So I just have to do it. And you're going to have to trust me. It's just, it's, just, it's a character issue. It's say, well, I, I trust Pastor Neil. Or what if you're going to another church and the pastor has proved himself to be faithful and true? Well, I don't understand why he's doing that, but I'm just have to trust the pastor. Now, sometimes we're forced to make decisions. We're forced to make decisions that include the whole church, not just Europe. Okay? So if I make, if something happens, goes down, sometimes the decision involves the whole church. And, and it might seem like it's going against you. It's not. The, the pastor has to make decisions based on what he feels is best for the whole church. So, you know, a little grace is needed, a little understanding. Uh, you have to understand that pastors are human beings. <laughs> they have feelings and emotions just like you. Feelings and emotions, either negative to a negative situation or a positive situation, they have feelings and emotions just like you. And oftentimes they respond that way. So something negative goes down uh, in your life, how do you feel? Oh, I'm happy, clappy. Uh, not necessarily so. Sometimes it takes you a while to kind of bounce back. Guess what? Pastors are just the same like you. They're just human beings just trying to do their ministry in the church. They're not perfect. Um, fourthly, uh, pastors are not Jesus. Pastors are not Jesus. They're not. You have to look to Jesus to carry you through this Christian life. Jesus, the, the Bible says, the Lord says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. There's only one who will ever do that. And guess his name is? It's Jesus it ain't Neil, okay? If you're looking to Neil, uh, you're, you're looking down the wrong road, pal. You need to look to Jesus. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. I have a certain ministry and I try to my, be my best. 
But I'll never be able to say, I'll never, never leave you or forsake you. Because sometimes I might. You look to Jesus, my friends. And finally, uh, and this is the one that's near and dear to my heart. Be nice to your pastor. (laughs) He appreciates it when you are. Well, let's pray. Enough of that. Father, we thank you for the calling that you place on men to be the pastors of the church. Lord, help us. Help each one of the pastors here on staff throughout Calvary Chapel, the pastors you've called, um, to heed the words that are written in this book concerning what a pastor should do and not do. May we be true to your call. May we shepherd the flock of God. May we be the kind of men who set an example by the way we live, the way we speak, the way we um, go about our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.